Turn the other cheek. Give the shirt off your back. Go the extra mile. All phrases that have found their way into our culture still today from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the section we are about to look at today, which many would argue is the most noble, that this sermon that was given on a mountain, that this section is the pinnacle, it's the summit of the sermon. But it's also loaded with possible traps. And so today, as has been the case throughout this whole second section, we want to both do some correction in terms of the way these passages have been abused, and then we also want to help you understand what it really is that Jesus was getting at. One of the principles that we stress over and over again when it comes to preaching and studying and teaching Scripture is to get down to the heart of the message, not what the Bible says to you or to me. We don't want to treat it just as inspirational literature, finding meaning the way we want to find meaning. The question shouldn't be, as you've heard me say before, what does it mean to you or to me? The question is, what does it mean? Jesus had a specific message in mind, and all too often we have used passages to rule out ideas in Scripture that are firmly established were we to step back and see the big picture. There are those that have discounted a biblical model of marriage. There are those that have discounted grace and the cross and, and salvation and sin by saying, well, what about this verse? Others in relation to this passage have reached erroneous conclusions. One of those things is the question, should Christians be pacifists? Much of the idea of pacifism comes from the very passages we've been looking at. We could ask the question, should Christians ever fight in a war? How about in a just war? Is there ever a just war? What is Jesus getting at when he says, for Christians, we are not to resist evil in this world, and when it comes, we should turn the other cheek, give the shirt off our back, and go the extra mile. Well, let's find out what Jesus was really getting at. We're in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read, beginning at verse 38, all the way through to the end of the chapter, which covers not just our section today, but introduces also the sister topic that Paul is going to cover for us next week about loving our enemies. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect then, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There are six antitheses that are stated in this section about kingdom righteousness or kingdom morality where Jesus contrasts the morality not of the Old Testament law but the oral tradition of the Pharisees that is rooted in the Old Testament law but has been turned into a hyper-legalistic set of rules well beyond what the Old Testament prescribes. Jesus is taking the exaggerated idea of holiness of the Pharisees and responding with an equally overly dramatic response. And I think it's important that you capture that at this point. We've seen that through these first four You have heard it said, but I say to you, that's the common pattern related to hatred versus murder, lust versus adultery, faithfulness in marriage versus divorce. That's part of the context you need to understand. When he says, you have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he is quoting from the Old Testament law, But you have to remember that the Old Testament law has three components. There's the moral law represented and summarized by the Ten Commandments, and they are summarized by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That moral law is for all people at all times. Then there's the civil law. Legislation for the people of Israel as a way of applying the moral law. And it's in that civil legislation that we find this teaching. And by the way, there is also ceremonial law, and that's all the practices around the temple and sacrifices and the the holy days and the various feasts. So if we divide them out that way, it helps us to understand why people can't go to the Old Testament civil law and point out something that seems ridiculous for us today and then say the whole Bible's ridiculous, culturally irrelevant. They honestly just don't understand Scripture. They're abusing Scripture. And so were the Pharisees. Let me read in the civil law. If people are fighting, and if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. That's a little more complete than the one we're used to. This is what we refer to as the lex talionis, the principle of exact retribution. Let me tell you the story behind this principle. Israel is coming out of a culture where there are blood feuds, where there are inter-tribal wars, just like you have in the Middle East today, that are rooted in vengeance, where someone was harmed, the other person retaliated, and then that escalated into immense bloodshed. When Moses gave this declaration, what he's actually doing is both giving a clear legislation for fair punishment, but he was also intentionally restricting the nature of that punishment. So it was actually protective as well. 
This type of justice was in the hands of the judges, the spiritual equivalent of the court system for the nation of Israel. It was equal retribution, but it was no more. And it was designed to take away this horrible tradition of vengeance and bloodletting that was prevalent even within God's people. Even within the civil law, there are opportunities for this not to be practiced. People could just give a financial penalty if that's what the family wished. So it wasn't necessarily required. There were alternatives. And certainly by the time of Christ, most commonly, things were settled by financial punishment with the exception of capital punishment, life for life. But the Pharisees had taken what was meant for the civil law and applied it to personal righteousness, using it for the very thing it was intended to eliminate. The reason why we know that is because what Jesus uses as four examples are all about personal relationships, because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were abusing this law in order to seek personal revenge. Jesus is saying, No, the kingdom of God is about personal sacrifice, not personal retribution. So that's the big picture here. You have heard it say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, we should not resist the evil one. Now this is that phrase that leads lots of people down a track. Tolstoy took this principle. He tells in his story that he went away and just found himself reading the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again, and then suddenly he had what he believed was this divine revelation of what this meant not to resist the evil one, and he painted this glorious picture of a world without any institutions that resist evil whatsoever. There should be no military, there should be no police force, there should be no court system. Tolstoy believed that people were essentially hopeful of good, And he believed that if Christians began this complete pacifistic culture that eventually there would be no such need for that. Tolstoy's writing strongly influenced Mahatma Gandhi, who was also influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. It was the one thing that he says gave him high regard for Jesus. Those were rooted in his idea of passive resistance, which of course we know in India had profound effect. And it was Gandhi's idea of passive resistance that had such dramatic impact on Martin Luther King Jr. in terms of the civil rights movement. And of course their practice of passive resistance brought such light on the hatred and bigotry across the South in particular that there was dramatic change. But now, could you imagine Gandhi in Hitler's Germany or in Stalin's Russia? In those settings, were Gandhi to take that approach, we know what would have happened. He'd have been arrested and we'd never have seen or heard from him again. The thing that made both the civil rights movement in the United States and the passive resistance movement in India succeed was the fact that both nations, no matter how evil men's actions were and no matter how misguided their governance was, both nations at the core had a sense of Christian responsibility. And therefore, 
this passive resistance revealed the hypocrisy of the nation to itself. And finally, just people stood up and made changes in the government, in the churches, in neighborhoods, and in schools. They were hard fought, and they were not passive. I bring all that up to say to you that with all respect and great admiration for Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and others like them, as successful as they were and as much as we admire the sacrifice, my point in saying all that is that that's not what this passage is talking about. Tolstoy's notion that there should be no government that resists evil was completely misguided in terms of what Scripture teaches broadly and what Jesus was getting at here. As a citizen of the kingdom, there are two levels. There's what we as a society do to combat evil and the role that we play individually in that societal structure, but then there's also how we react with people in the everyday. What I want to do to help underscore what I'm saying is take you just quickly to Romans chapter 13, And we'll see Paul's development of these ideas. Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities and not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Paul is saying in general principle, governance is somehow managed by God. And this is a necessary thing because of the brokenness and presence of evil in our world. We look to a day when there will be no need for man's governance, but that is not today. God's purpose for government, not that government always acts this way or that government is godly, but God's purpose for government is to hold back evil, to punish the evildoer and to bless those who do good. My point in saying this is that you understand there is a place for the sword, there's a place for enforcement, and of course people need to be a part of that. Good people need to be a part of that. Christians need to be a part of that. The epistles address Christians who are involved in government and in the armies. And so this is not a statement saying that we should not resist evil at all. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about 
how the Pharisees had taken this as a privilege of personal vendetta, and he's saying how you and I interact in our everyday occurrences, God's called us to something better. Now, I want you to back up to Romans chapter 12 and read the context here, because Paul doesn't jump into the idea of God's role for government. He starts by painting a picture of the types of people we are to be in our day-to-day relationships. Verse nine, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I'm pretty sure Paul's going to be in the same passage next week. So I'm not going to exegete it. My point is that Paul is balancing our personal life, so much as it depends on us and our interaction with people, not to be about revenge and justice, but to be about peace. We overcome that evil with good. But then he talks about God's role in bringing revenge on our behalf, which we need to leave room for. And then he talks about the government's role in doing that. And we are the government. So we are at once people of peace in our everyday lives, but we are also the government exercising God's purpose for government, which is to hold back evil. Does that make sense to you? Now, my mind went to a current situation, the shooting in Charleston, as a phenomenal example of how both of these dynamics have been revealed. I'm gonna play this uh, news clip and then we'll talk about it. Their words rang out in a courtroom in Charleston today, words more powerful and resonant than any act of hate. Victims' families addressing directly the man accused of opening fire inside the Mother Emanuel Church, telling of pain, loss, and most remarkably, of forgiveness. Today, the judge held 21-year-old Dylan Roof without bail. Investigators telling NBC News he confessed almost immediately to taking those nine lives and this chilling detail, that their kindness to him at that Wednesday prayer service almost convinced him to abandon his plan. Tonight, a vigil honoring those lives lost at Charleston's 5,000-seat arena. But we will start with today's extraordinary moments in court, including some surprising and controversial remarks from the judge. NBC's Chris Jansen leads us off. Dylan Roof stood in a small jailhouse room flanked by armed guards, showing no emotion. What is your age? 21. You're 21 years old. Are you employed? No, sir. 
The courtroom packed with victims' families for an emotional bond hearing that started with an unexpected statement by the judge. We have victims, nine of them, but we also have victims on the other side. There are victims on this young man's side of the family. The magistrate stunning some onlookers by mentioning the shooter's family. Victims' families spoke directly to Dylan Ruff over video conference, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance. You took something very precious away from me. I would never talk to her ever again. I would never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. Alana Simmons spoke of her grandfather, Reverend Daniel Simmons. Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof and their legacies will live alone. So hate won't win. Taiwanza Sanders pleaded with the gunman to shoot him instead of his aunt. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Tawanza Sanders is my son, but Tawanza was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. But as we say in Bible study, we enjoyed you. But may God have mercy on you. In many states, it's unusual for families to speak at a bond hearing, but South Carolina law allows it. Today, with their losses still so fresh, one by one, families honored those they lost with mercy for the man accused of taking them. Pretty a remarkable news story. These people that have experienced devastating loss model their Christ by offering forgiveness. The, what you don't hear on the news, which you can get on C-SPAN, is one of them witnessed to him and encouraged him to find Christ as his savior, offered forgiveness and grace. But what is it that allowed them that platform to minister grace in such a powerful way? It was the presence of the government. You see, the judge acted for God as the institution that will make sure that this young man is held responsible for the evil that he did. And because they acted for justice as God's instrument, it allowed God's people personally to exercise grace. I think that's the key to this passage. And so let's just run through some points here. This is about our personal response to those who seek to harm us. This is not about evil in general. Tolstoy got that wrong. This is about how we deal with ugly people in our society as we interact with them personally. The idea of do not resist, the Greek word there doesn't mean to give up. It means do not rise up against with equal force. So what Jesus is saying, don't retaliate against evil, rising up to match it. There's a better way to respond. And so the general principle is that this is about personal sacrifice over personal revenge. And now he moves on and he talks about these four common everyday examples. We don't see them that way, but the listeners of the day would. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. What's that about? We think this is about violence. It's not. 
the Greek word describes a backhand slap, which was a great insult to a person. This is about humiliation and insult, not about physical abuse. Again, I wanna say, if you're in an abusive relationship, turning the other cheek is not what Jesus wants you to do. Because that's not what this teaching is about. This is about insult. Jesus is saying, take a second insult rather than rising up and matching that hatred with your own hatred. That's how you should respond to people who insult you. The second thing that he talks about is someone taking you to court. If uh, anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat to them as well. Give the shirt off your back. It's a popular phrase, but what is Jesus getting at there? This is obviously small claims court, right? (laughs) The first thing he's talking about is a tunic. It's just your everyday clothes. But the outer coat that Jesus speaks of, the Old Testament law said was your inalienable right to have. No one could legally ever take your outer coat from you. Jesus says, if they come just for your shirt, you give them what they could never take. Give them your very outer coat. What's the principle he's talking about there? We should show radical generosity in the face of the frivolous taker. We heap coals on their head by actually giving them what matters to us. We answer a trivial matter with a non-trivial response. The third area he talks about is about going the extra mile. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, about 10 years before the birth of Jesus, the Roman Empire made the rule that a soldier could conscript any person who was not a Roman citizen to carry their gear, but the law said they could only carry it for one mile. You know, all those highways that Rome put in that connected their vast empire, on every one of those roads, every mile there was a marker that was put. Every one of those markers told you how far you were from Rome, and that's where we get another popular expression, all roads lead to Rome. But that also was a way of enforcing this code. It would have been very common for the people that Jesus was speaking to to have witnessed a scene where a soldier grabs perhaps a young man and says, hey, come, carry this. And you could picture the young man saying, I'm about to go and open my cart at the market. You want me to go in the opposite direction, and if I don't get there at the right time, I won't get the spot, and I won't get it opened up, and you'll really impact my livelihood. And the soldier says, tough, pick it up. And he would have to do it. It is almost certain that that's the everyday scene that Jesus is talking about here. And what he's saying is, When you are forced, it is beyond your will to do something. Let's picture scenarios that would match this for us. Government ordinances, things that we would not choose to do short of disobeying God by obeying those rules. Employment, (laughs) parents. You could picture numbers of situations where we come under authority and are asked to do things that we might not want to do, but we're doing it because we're conscripted to do it. And what Jesus is saying is that young man that's pulled away from his livelihood in order to do this, if he's a citizen of the kingdom of God, he should heap coals by actually going another mile. 
because that's what kingdom people do. What's the principle there? We should always do more than what is simply required of us. Always do more. Not because people deserve it, but because God is honored by it. It models His generosity to us. And let us remind ourselves that we are more like the conscriptor than the creator. God's grace comes to us, and in turn, we give that generosity to others. Well, the fourth phrase is not so popular in our culture. Turn the other cheek, give the shirt off your back, go the extra mile. Not so popular is give to those who ask. You don't hear people saying that very much. And it was probably as unpopular then as it is now. What is Jesus getting at when he says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you? Again, culturally, the context of this statement is the poor. People who are truly in need. And the idea of caring for the needy is twofold in terms of Jesus' statement here. Give them what they need now, but help them get to where They can be self-sustaining. That's the idea of the loan, the investment. Be generous in helping the needy. These are the four examples that Christ gives. How quickly when we are harmed or when we are inconvenienced, when we run into all these different types of unacceptable people in our culture. And, And that's what these are. These are all people that are unacceptable. Think about it. There is the person that insults you the person that sues you, the authority that requires of you. There's the needy person that inconveniences you. You see the picture? It's how we deal with those that we consider the ugly people, the undesirables, that is not to be rooted in the idea of repaying evil with evil or justice. Every single one is about personal sacrifice. And Jesus not only taught this, he demonstrated it. Peter refers to that in 1 Peter chapter 2. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. We could call this path that Jesus has set an example for and called us to follow in his steps and detailed in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. You know what we could call this? The way of the cross. We could tie it right back to Jesus saying, if you wanna come after me, you're gonna need to deny yourself and take up your cross. Because you're either trying to find your own life, your own justice, your own happiness, your own satisfaction, your own revenge, or you're finding your life in me. Here's the beauty of the gospel in relation to this. 
Jesus was struck on the face and insulted to the point where the prophet said his face was unrecognizable. Jesus, who could easily, as the old hymn says, called 10,000 angels to come and deliver him and even destroy the whole world. That Jesus, who could have retaliated to the point of righteous wrath, perpetually through that beating, turned the other cheek. He surrendered his clothes completely. Oh, they thought they were stripping him of his clothes, casting lots at his expense. But this is the creator of the universe. They only took his clothing, including his outer garment, because he allowed them to. He did not resist. They required that he walk, and he walked gladly far more than the extra mile because he walked to the place of his execution. And in terms of giving to the poor and needy, as he hung there on the cross, he gave generously everything for our greatest and ugliest need. And that was the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You see, in terms of how we interact with each other in this simple little four-verse text is the very path that Christ himself walked for us. And all he's asking is that we walk that path with him. Father, thank you for your incredible generosity to us. Thank you for the example that Christ set. Forgive us for the times we rise up against evil in a way that contributes, that can also be itself evil. Forgive us for seeking revenge through our own strength, believing even that we're doing it in the name of Christ. Forgive us for missing what you laid right in front of us, the path of the cross. May we be those who are generous and giving and sacrificial even to those who don't deserve it because what credit do we get when we do that to only the good people? Father, the credit that we want is to see Christ honored, his love known and experienced, and so help us to choose that path for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.